You're listening to Seamside, where we explore the inner work of textiles. I'm your host, Zach Foster, and today we sit down with quilt historian Yannick and Smucker. Before we jump into this conversation with Yannickin, just a couple notes of housekeeping. Number one, you know there's a giveaway afoot. If you're listening to this at the end of 2023, you know that the Nook just turned two years old. And to celebrate our terrible twos, I'm giving away a pair of annual memberships, good for the entire year of 2024. That means the lucky winners get access to 12 different workshops hosted by 12 different visiting artists, 24 sewing circles hosted by me, and almost daily sewing circles hosted by other good folks on the Quilty Nook. So to enter the giveaway, click on the link in the show notes below. There's something happening almost every day on the Nook. There is so much to love. I hope to see you there. Now, the Nook's not the only beautiful thing happening in this world. Check out this recent review from E.J. Hearn, entitled, How Do We Love Zach? (laughs) Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing. You can go to the reviews and read them for yourself. I'm just going to skip down to the bottom because I feel like it's important for what we're talking about today. In this long list of things that E.J. loves (laughs) about Seamside, they wrap up with, Have you ever met someone who connects better with each person he comes across? With his guests, of course, but also in random encounters elsewhere. He makes each of us feel important, like we're a part of his family. And his ability to make us better thinkers and better communicators and better connectors and better people cannot be understated. E.J. Hearn, that is very kind and maybe a little generous of you, but I receive it and I'm very thankful. If you are finding, like E.J., that this Seamside podcast is helping you to be a better thinker, communicator, connector, and person, wow, I would really appreciate it if you take a moment to put that in writing. Write me a short five-star review on Apple Podcast. Not only do I love hearing what you think about these shows I'm putting together for you, but it really is the best way to help other people discover the magic that is Seamside. So thank you in advance for that beautiful review. The Great Depression wasn't something we talked much about in my family. All I know is it's what made my grandfather quit school in the eighth grade so he could go work in his father's grocery store. When we think about this time in international history, which lasted from the stock market crash in New York in 1929 and leading up into World War II, we often think of things like the photographs of Dorothea Lange and the New Deal from Franklin Roosevelt, which funded large public works, things like TVA and Hoover Dam. But quilt historian Yannick and Smucker has uncovered a softer side of the New Deal, one that until recently has received very little attention. The role of quilts as a stream of domestic income. In this conversation, Yannick and I explore how the New Deal may have changed quilting for a generation, how quilts can be containers for hope and resilience, and how quilts were used as American propaganda. I hope you enjoy How to Soften Hard Times with my good friend, Yannick and Smucker. Yannick, and thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. So good to see you, Zach. Can you paint the picture for us a little bit? Where are you right now? Sure. I am in my office at Westchester University, which is a state four-year comprehensive university outside of Philadelphia in the suburbs. And I'm in my office. I just got done teaching maybe an hour ago. Got little quilts on the wall over here. Got some artwork, including covers, one of my earlier books on the wall. I teach in a history department here at Westchester, and it's the last week of the semester, so things are a little hairy, but this is the best way to procrastinate (laughs) from grading. (laughs) Productive procrastination. That's right. I love it. I love it. I think that's something a lot of us creative folks are familiar with. And as a former educator, I just want to say thank you so much for carving out a little piece of your afternoon in this last term of the semester to talk with me. I really appreciate it. Now... You have recently written a book called A New Deal for Quilts, and I am, it has been sleeping with me in bed for the last couple of weeks. I have 
so thoroughly enjoyed flipping through, looking at the different quilts, looking at all the photographs you found from the New Deal era. I have so many questions I want to ask you, Yannick, but before we jump into the book itself, can you just kind of define the terms for our audience, especially folks who may not be familiar with American history? What is the New Deal? What time period are we talking about? The New Deal is the name for the federal legislative initiatives centered around reform, recovery, relief efforts during the Great Depression, which is the 1930s. The stock market crashed in 1929 and sort of ushered in this era we now call the Great Depression. The New Deal begins in 1933 when Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, is sworn in. So the New Deal is what we call the, the package of programs that his administration rolled out over the next decade. And I think the casual student of history, that would be me, often associates the New Deal with really large public works like building dams and roads, and you could name several others, I'm sure. I don't associate the New Deal with quilts. So how did you become interested in that intersection between quilts and then the government's response to what was going on with the Great Depression? That's a great question. I don't think a lot of people associate them. So you're not alone. I didn't associate them as well. I did, however, associate quilts with the Great Depression. Um, We have a lot of nostalgia, in fact, for this this time period as being one of the the great time periods of of American quilt making. How I discovered that the government was involved in quilts and quilt making is any time I needed an old-timey black and white photograph of a woman with a quilt, I could find one in the Farm Security Administration photo archive. The Farm Security Administration hired professional photographers to document the plight of Americans who were struggling during the Great Depression. And so this is lots of migrant families who were moving from one part of the country to another, usually due to lack of jobs, the farmland, that what we know as the Dust Bowl, inhibiting the ability to farm. Lots of uh, photographs documenting sharecropping families and tenant farmers in the South. So anytime I'd need, need a photograph, I could find one. I eventually learned more about this photography project. Essentially, it's propaganda. It's the government trying to create a public relations campaign about why New Deal relief efforts and reform efforts are necessary, and also showing the American public how much Americans are benefiting from these programs, how successful they are. And these photographs would be published in magazines and newspapers. They were also exhibited widely across the United States. And as I learned the agenda of this photography project, I was like, well, why why do quilts and quilt makers appear over and over and over? And I started to think about them as, well, if these are propaganda, what is the government trying to communicate? That's where I started. And then I soon realized that quilts were not just in the Farm Security Administration photo archive, but the WPA, which stands for the Works Progress Administration, had sewing rooms, many of which made quilts, and they were training women how to make quilts. There were handicraft projects that similarly were training people how to make quilts. There were initiatives in the federal arts program that were documenting historic quilts. Quilts were popular, but I was just amazed once I realized how much they permeated all of these different programs. There's so many things I want to ask you. Okay, we're going to get back to the images because I do want to ask you about that. Yeah, I know the images are what pulled me in. The images, they were the hook for me. I mean, I love old photographs regardless, but like seeing the people and like the humanity and like these objects as they're, they're interacting with them. Yeah, that, that's definitely what hooked me into this project. So these images are incredible that you've selected. Is this archive, the Farm Security Administration, is this archive available to anybody that wants to look into these images? Absolutely. They've all been archived. They're, they're digitized by the Library of Congress. And so since these were created with taxpayer money, they are all in the public domain. And thank goodness the Library of Congress has digitized them all. Incredible. And if these images are a thread of propaganda. What message was the federal government trying to communicate through these images? What stands out to you through these images? I think they had several different messages they were trying to communicate. A predominant one, I think, is really showing how Americans were making do. The New Deal had this 
kind of tightrope walk to convince Americans that you kind of need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and if you all come together and lift morale and provide mutual aid to one another, we'll all get out of the, the Great Depression. But at the same time, it needed to demonstrate that these massive federal programs were necessary. So you couldn't just do it by getting by, by scrimping and saving, that the governmental programs also were necessary. So they're doing this dual work of showcasing the great need that Americans had. So like there's a picture of this woman, she doesn't look older than 20 in this photograph, and she's got five children and bare springs on her bed that are just covered with a pile of quilts. And those images are really trying to provoke empathy among the viewers. If we think of the viewers as both legislators uh, at the federal level and more middle and upper class Americans who were sometimes quite skeptical of these New Deal programs because they were a massive amount of money um, spent in trying to lift, lift the American economy and the American people out of the Depression. So on one hand, they're documenting the need, and on another, they're showing the resilience of Americans. There's so many pictures of what we call a quilting bee, you know, a group of women sit seated around a quilting frame. I think that really is showcasing some of the collectivism that the federal government was trying to promote during the 1930s. We think of the United States as this, you know, our rugged individualism and the, the kind of capitalist ethos that we are quite accustomed to here in the 21st century, yet the New Deal really had a lot of socialist inclinations. So some of it I really see, the, the quilt embodies that sort of collective spirit of people coming together to work on something. I really see that as one of the primary messages. There were also images I think that were really intending to showcase the success of the New Deal as well. Like you could get a Farm Security Administration loan to buy a sewing machine. So you see a woman working on this sewing machine on this new treadle machine that was funded by a government credit program. The New Dealers wanted to say, look, look how we are helping uh, and like, look how successful these initiatives are. Some of my favorite photos in the book, still not my number one, we're going to get to that in a minute. But some of my favorite photos in the book are the one of quilting bees. And it makes me wonder, what's your sense, Yannickin, about how prevalent bees actually were leading into the Depression? And then how did that shift through the Depression era? Quilting bees really are one of the very mythologized aspects of quilt making. Not that they didn't exist, but already in an 1843 issue of a ladies' magazine, they were calling quilting bees old-fashioned in 1843. So we imagine, you know that people are sitting around these quilting frames for that this is how quilts have always been made. Well, first of all, quilts have not always been made. There's textiles and various forms have been made for sure, but textiles were so expensive and rare prior to the Industrial Revolution that the kinds of patchwork quilts that we think of today were not readily made, not in abundance anyway, because only the very wealthy had access to enough textiles to be like cutting them up and sewing them back together. And few people had that kind of leisure time that it requires to make a quilt as well we, when you had actual chores and tasks. But quilts as we know them were, were not what we think of them in the 20th century or the 21st century. Quilting bees were a, it was a work party and work parties were very common so quilting bees really did exist, but I think most quilt production was done among mothers, perhaps with daughters, not the whole bigger social aspect that we think of in the quilting bee. Quilting bees existed, though, but they were already considered nostalgic, <laughs> sort of romantic events by the 1840s, and that continued through the 1860s. So it's really hard to separate whether it's a, a real thing or a mythologized thing or a thing that becomes real because it's actually fun to sit around a quilting frame with your friends and get to chit-chat while you're doing your little running stitch, holding the three layers of a, of a quilt together. And you got food? Of course there'd be food and music. And often the menfolk were like kicked out and had to fend for themselves for the day. 
I would have been so lonely. You would have. I know. You'd be like, can't I please sit at the quilting frame? <laughs> it is this really interesting mixture of, of myth and reality. And certainly by the 1930s, this, this myth and this idea of the quilting bee is entrenched. It's like a, a romantic aspect of American history. And then people had a lot of time on their hands. There was a lot of more intentional reuse uh, of fabrics and old clothing and feed sacks and so forth to make quilts. Having that socially productive activity was quite desirable. There's a great book by one of my mentors, Mary Kay Waldvogel. She wrote the real definitive history of quilts in the Great Depression. It's called Soft Covers for Hard Times. And she really views quilts and quilt making as a balm during these hard times. It's that sort of thing where like, yes, let's make quilts because we have to make do anyway. So it might as well be pretty and invite your friends over. We'll be socially productive. It's always more fun, you know, in terms of lifting morale, not to be alone. I have a copy of Soft Covers two arms distances away from me here by my bed. I would get it, but... We'll do it after the show. One thing that I think was a moment that really surprised me in recent memory, Anakin, was back when we were doing softball with Heidi Parks and Luke Haynes. And I got on the topic of quilting bees. And I just asked this Zoom room full of over 100 quilters, raise your hand if you've ever taken part in a quilting bee. One hand went up, maybe two. And so here you have this like iconic image of American cooperative communal labor that is highly romanticized, yet now in the 2020s, it's become largely a solo sport, right? The thing that is entirely completed by one individual. And I just think that's so fascinating how things can shift like that over time. It is. And, you know, I grew up in a Mennonite family, a modern Mennonite, meaning we, you know, we dressed like everyone else and had cars and electricity and higher education. However, like the, the church, my home church still had a, a women's, it was like a relief and mission organization, but one of the, the common activities, you know, as when they met once a month was sitting around a quilting frame, finishing a quilt or often tying a comforter. My grandmother, the church that in Ohio that she attended, they had, I think, a weekly sewing group and they, they stitched quilts for money it was measured by the spool or by the yard of thread so like you would count how many spools you would use to do quilting for hire and then they used that money in their relief and mission work as well so those were the associations that I had like growing up and certainly my first quilt my my mother and my grandmother were sitting around the frame with me I don't know if you call that a quilting bee I think that's probably much more common where it's like the people in the household or the family members working together on a project. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, it, but there's a lot of photographs, as you can see, of these quilting bees. And I want to get to one of those, but I'm going to save it. I got a question about that for you. But do you have a favorite picture in the book, a favorite photograph? It's definitely hard to choose. One of the photos I've always been really drawn to is this one of a quilt being used as a doorway in a, um, this is a, strawberry picking camp in Louisiana and to me this sort of epitomizes like that um, it's the make-do attitude that we now associate with the Great Depression but I love seeing a quilt being used as something else. What page is that Yannickan? That is on page 57. Page 57. 57. We'll get a image of that photo in the show notes for people to to look along. That's been one I've been drawn to kind of since the start of this project. Well, it made the back cover of the book. So that's, I can see that you might think that's kind of special. That's right. I was so happy to see the image on page 54, which you referenced in the very first minutes of our conversation, because Mm -hmm. there's always been, especially since I had that residency at the folk school in Western North Carolina, and I acquired my very own quilting frame, this very simple four sticks that you clamp together and that you would raise and lower, like you mentioned earlier. Oh, so it, it does it still have pulleys on it or like... Um... No, no, no. The pulleys, I went with the house, I'm sure. But I got okay. the four slats and the clamps. That's uh-huh. what I have. Yeah. And yeah. it was so hard for me to find information about how it actually existed in a space 
that I, similar to you, scoured archives looking for images of like how people really kept these frames in their homes. Like how are they being used? And so this image on page 54 is just so delightful to me because you see this quilt frame with a quilt already loaded and it's hoisted all the way up against the ceiling to make room for a dance party. And you see a bunch of folks twirling around underneath it. I just think that's so sweet. I love that photo too. Particularly my research into the photos, you know, sometimes it felt like I was a voyeur, but like I loved seeing these intimate spaces and seeing how people were actually interacting with quilts. And this is not the only uh, image I have of someone's quilt frame being hoisted to the ceiling. I have a, have a number of them. I think this might be the only one in the book itself, but my project website, I have like tons of tons of photos that I've saved there. So I love that image as well. And some of the other photos that I found for this project, even if the quilting frame is lowered on the ground, you can see the ropes that are you know, that are still in use. It makes sense. We need to inhabit these spaces and particularly then even more so than now, spaces are small and lots of people were living in one space and they had to uh, make it multifunctional. One of these days, my dream is to have a, a semi-public studio where people can come visit. And in that semi-public space, I would love to have one of these pulley system quilt frames. Okay. And I'm imagining listening to you talk about this, a thought has occurred to me that I've never thought of before, that if your quilt is always hovering above your head, the quilter, you would think, would spend an extra moment thinking about their selection of backing fabric because you're going to look at it a lot more than you would typically, right? That's a great point. That particular image that you just called out, I love that you can see the quilting pattern so clearly. When I was a kid, and we, and we did have uh, quilt frames up in my house often enough, it's not like constantly, but I loved going underneath the quilting frame and looking at the stitches. It would almost be, if the light was shining through, it's kind of like the stained glass effect where you could see the stitching and you could see whatever was pieced on the front side as well. It's almost like, you know, now we build like pillow forts out of sofa cushions and we're trying to maybe approximate the quilt frame. Everyone should have a quilt frame. Throw the sofa to the curb. So, Yannick, and I still have so many questions for you. One of them is, how did quilt culture change coming out of the New Deal era? The U.S. government put a lot of time and resources into documenting quilts and training people to make quilts. What was the impact of all of that? How did things change during this chapter of time? That's such a great question. And one that I, as I was working, writing the, the book, almost didn't become apparent to me until I was really, you know, sitting down to write the conclusion. Like, what was new about the New Deal for quilts? In part, if we look at what happened to quilts and quilt making in the decades following the Great Depression, You'll notice that we, we don't have tons of quilts from the 40s, 50s, 60s. The late 20th century quilt revival really starts in the, in the 70s, coinciding with the bicentennial and the women's movement really um, spurring people to appreciate traditional women's arts again. So we have this real quiet period. It's not that no one was making quilts. They're just not made in, in the same kind of numbers at all, particularly if we compare it to the, the 1930s. I have theories about this. I mean, all along people have said, you know, the materials available really changed following World War II and that we have synthetics and some of actual physical changes to textiles that shifted some of this. And again, this is something that I can't like prove with evidence, but in some ways quilt making really became drudgery during the Great Depression. I agree with Mary Kay Waldvogel's assessment that they were soft covers for hard times. But once the hard times were over, people wanted to go to the department store and buy a chenille bedspread. I've heard anecdotally some accounts of just like how much women did not want to make their own clothing, did not want to make their own things anymore once they had income. So it makes a lot of sense that people weren't interested in kind of uh, salvage crafts um, that became necessary during the 1930s. Necessary in terms of making do, but also necessary as as a balm, as a way of lifting one's morale. 
I also think of the women who are employed by Works Progress Administration sewing rooms and handicraft projects. Um, these were hard jobs to come by in that um, you had to be the head of household. You couldn't have a father or a husband supporting you in order to get a job at a sewing room. Some of them were really set up almost like sweatshops. I mean, uh, some of them had industrial sewing machines, and they're predominantly producing garments rather than quilts, but a number of them produced quilts, and some of them were even called themselves quilt factories. So if you think of this woman who is like working this kind of government job, WPA job, very valuable. It's certainly a way that they were able to make ends meet, and they are making garments and using the scraps to make quilts, or in some of them they're producing basically very utilitarian um, whole cloth comforters, sometimes machine quilting them. And there are like hundreds of thousands of quilts produced by WPA sewing rooms, and they are, they're not sold, um, they can only be donated to people who are in need. But I think about like quilt making in that kind of context, like you might not ever wanna make a quilt again. You might not ever want to like use a sewing machine again, use a needle again when you associate it with this very challenging time filled with drudgery. In those settings in particular, they weren't making quilts as a hobby. It wasn't a leisure activity. It was the way to make a few bucks a week. I can see why people didn't want to keep making quilts through the 40s, 50s, and 60s when this is the association we have with them. It makes good sense to me and it makes me think, yeah, I wouldn't teach my kids that either. That's right. I think that's a big part of it. Younger women might not have been like learning how to make quilts. Um, that's a very good point because their their mothers and grandmothers would be like, you're not doing this. So as a way to kind of tie a bow on this part of our conversation, Yannickin, what are some of the lingering insights that you think about as a historian, as a researcher, when it comes to quilts during this particular chapter of American history? Similarly, another sort of way that I perceive quilts and quilt making shifting is the relationship of African Americans to quilt making during this time period. Quilt making would not have been new to African Americans. It is known and documented that, that there were many quilts made by enslaved people, both when they were making them for um, their enslaver, the family who, quote, owned them, but also quilts made within the slave quarters. We sadly often don't know that much about what these look like. Um, we often think of African-American quilt making as this very improvisational style. This is a stereotype that I am hesitate, I hesitate to give any kind of blanket uh, coverage of this is what African-American quilts look like. I don't think we can ever know the race of a quilt maker unless we know who that quilt maker is. And I really don't like the Ouija, Ouija board version of quilt history where we like guess that this was made by a black person because it looks improvisational, just like jazz. However, we do know that particularly people in more impoverished areas, more rural areas, did a lot more improvisational piecing. We see it among white people and black people. This can be an aesthetic choice. It can be one out of necessity. I think it's probably a combination of those things. You can see it in the hundreds of photographs of quilts in use in many of these precarious living situations throughout the rural South, That many of which are included in this book, but also in the larger photography collection. But we also know that there was a didactic sort of teaching people how to be homemakers correctly that was going on during the, the Great Depression and the New Deal. There were professional home economists who were on staff with the Farm Security Administration, also home economists employed by the Works Progress Administration who were teaching quilt making. There was usually a home economist on staff and these planned communities as well as the migrant labor camps. And they were taught quilt making. So if you think of like the expert lady, usually a white lady, teaching a black woman the quote, appropriate way to make a quilt. We know one particular poignant account this was Minnie Benberry, who is the mother-in-law of a great quilt historian, Questa Benberry. She's an African-American uh, quilt historian who's no longer living, sadly. Her famous book is called Always There, and it's about the diversity of styles among African-American quilt making. She owned this quilt that's now in the collection of Michigan State University Museum. And they call this quilt the WPA Tulip because... A federal worker, perhaps a WPA home economist of some sort, 
distributed the pattern to Minnie Benberry. And when all the ladies brought all their quilt tops to the churchyard in the spring to have a group quilting, all the ladies had made the same quilt. They had all made this tulip quilt because the federal worker had distributed the pattern throughout this whole rural area in Western Kentucky. So we know that there is like the expert white lady distributing patterns, at least in this case. So I think that African-American quilt making is definitely influenced by this external force that quilt making was something you did at home with your family members and so you developed your own familial and community preferences. And so if there's an external force coming in distributing a commercially available pattern, of course it's going to change. And we also know that like G's Bend, one of the legendary quilt making communities of all time, the Farm Security Administration turned G's Bend into a planned community and they brought with them nice like new homes and like plots of land for them to farm on, more like subsistence farming rather than, you know, farming enough for their family. And then they also brought in fancy treadle sewing machines into the home economics room and they taught young women how to use them. So I can't help but think that quilt making changed, African-American quilt making in particular, due to these external influences. No doubt. Now, we've talked a lot about the images in the book, which are a treasure trove. But let's talk about some quilts for a moment. I would love to turn our attention to Fanny Shaw's quilt that you open your introduction oh. with. This quilt has lived in my quilting memory for years, and I was so happy to open up your book and to see it just like splayed out there in a full page, full color representation. Fanny Shaw made this quilt called Prosperity is Just Around the Corner, which points to the optimism that either really existed or folks had to work hard to conjure during this time. And I was wondering if I could ask you to read a passage for us. Absolutely. So we're on page 13. If you don't mind, just read that first column and those first three lines of the next. Although President Herbert Hoover probably never said the exact words, prosperity is just around the corner. By 1932, this was a popular sentiment with a hit song prominently featuring the prediction in its title. Quiltmaker Fanny Shaw was certainly familiar with the catchphrase when she made her intricate applique quilt in the years following the economic downturn following the stock market crash of 1929. It featured common Americans peering around the corner awaiting economic relief. A housewife, banker, teacher, ball player, bum, and dozens of other representative figures hoping that better days are ahead. In a 1978 interview, Fanny Shaw recounted that she based many of these applique blocks on real individuals, with the figure of the housewife representing herself and the adjacent farmer, her husband. Quote, he didn't have no time to look around no corners. He just had to look straight down his row behind his old plow, end quote. She stitched the grocer, Einspeiser, who she recalled, quote, would let everybody he possibly could have their groceries on credit. He couldn't afford to do it, really, end quote. In the lower right-hand corner, she appliqued Uncle Sam arriving with farm relief, legal beer, and other aid. Fanny Shaw's quilt is clearly a prime example of creativity in the face of adversity. And while she may have been discouraged by Hoover's false optimism, she perceived in the American people a desire to unite and help each other through the Depression. She recalled, quote, That old Depression was something, but you know, I never saw so much lovingness in this country. It was one for all and all for one. Everybody loved, everybody was scared, and everybody was worried. All they owned to give each other was love. Such a beautiful sentiment. And then the quilt that came out of it. I have a feeling that folks listening have seen this quilt. But if you had to describe it, Yannick, and to someone who had never seen this quilt, what would you say? How would you put this quilt into words? It looks like a graphic novel. Yeah, like Chris Ware, for folks that are familiar. Yeah, like individual panes like a comic. And it's very clever design because she uses the same corner in each of the blocks. So it looks like the same setting for each character, each figure in her town that she's representing here. And each one of them, you kind of see their side and backside, which was also smart. She didn't have to quilt faces. But it really, it shows that this was affecting everyone. 
this is truly one of my favorite quilts of all time. Well, and I've never seen it in person. This is at the Dallas Museum of Art. And I love that it, it lives in an art museum, but also as a result, it's not going to be on display very often. So I was thrilled when I got the high-res image of it, which getting to see the detail of each of these characters and she embroidered under each one of them what their role was. So there's uh, the teacher, we didn't even mention, there's a elephant and a donkey for the two political parties. The detail is just amazing. I, I'm sure I would be blown away actually seeing it in person. I hope hope one day I can. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's astounding that even though we don't see the faces of these individuals, they are clearly real people. Each of them has, oh, I should say they are clearly specific characters, types, archetypes maybe. They each have very distinct clothing and costumes. And the only one that breaks the frame, so there's 30 squares altogether, right? It's a five by six grid. And the only square that breaks the frame is her husband, the farmer. We don't see him looking around the corner. We see him against this orange sky with his mules, his pair of mules, plowing his row. The backbone of the country. What is it? The, the backbone of the nation. It says the backbone of the nation goes on. Yeah. And over the sun, she has stitched the word hope. Annie Shaw. She, you're a good one. Along with this book, there is an attendant exhibition at the International Quilt Museum that is now open currently through April 2024, correct? April 20th? 20th. Yep. Mm-hmm. April 20th. And so there are 15 quilts, I believe, according to the checklist in the back of your book. Which one, when people go to see it, because I hope everybody, I'm going to try to go see this show. If you had to say, all right, spend an extra 10 seconds in front of these three quilts or more, do you have a top three? It's hard because I do love them all. The three I think I'm going to highlight, well, one is sort of, in my mind, the bookend to Fanny Shaw's quilt. It's a quilt by Mary Gasparic called Road to Recovery. I gave a talk uh, probably about a year and a half ago. It was an online Zoom talk for the American Folk Art Museum in New York City. And they put the recording up on Zoom or, or on YouTube afterwards. And a woman watched my talk, which was mostly about the role of the Index of American Design and some of the other federal arts project initiatives that involved quilts during the New Deal. This woman emails me, her name is Susan Salzer, and says, you know, she, that she's watched my recording of this lecture and that her grandmother had made this quilt that she suggested maybe I would want to include in my book. I had heard of Mary Gasperick. Mary was a, a Hungarian immigrant, came early in the 20th century when she was a, a late teenager. She settled in Chicago. She lived in a, a Hungarian neighborhood. During 1933, and this will kind of loop back to another quilt that I'm really enamored with, there was this giant quilt contest called the Sears Century of Progress Quilt Contest. It was in conjunction with the 1933 World's Fair, which was held in Chicago. So Mary saw quilts on display. She didn't know how to make quilts. She was adept at needlework, mostly embroidery, which would have been um, the traditional needlework that she brought with her from Hungary. So she sees these quilts that are submitted to this contest, and the contest had big prize money. You could win $1,000 if you were the top prize getter. This would have been like winning the Powerball um, during the Great Depression. So she started making quilts herself and she would adapt patterns. Uh, She really collected all the patterns that were published in the um, Detroit newspaper. So she creates this quilt for a later contest, the 1939 World's Fair contest, and she calls this quilt Road to Recovery. And Like Fanny Shaw, she's like really quilting her hopes and dreams, her optimism into the quilt. And this blew me away seeing it in person. The detail, it's just astounding. You can see a detail on page 22 of um, part of the quilt. And you can see her quilting stitches. She's stitched each of the years from, from 1929 to 1939. And she made this in 1939. And she's stitched herself sitting on a bench and there's this, uh, a young boy, there's cars and just beautiful autumnal leaves. And there's a road sign that says road to recovery. And she was really expressing that she felt by 1939 that they were kind of on the other side, which they really were. I mean, the depression wasn't over, over, but with the buildup to World War II, the economy was really lifting by this point in time. I don't know, this, this quilt, just seeing it in person, 
I mean, the pictures are good too, but seeing it in person just blew me away. The creativity, the care and detail, this really was her personal expression and her testament to her own experience during the depression, I think as well. I love that Mary is sitting there on a bench beside the road to recovery, patiently waiting from all from the looks of things. She's got her folded umbrella just in case it rains and she's got a little suitcase. But what I love from a metaphysical standpoint is that this road at some point in the quilt appears to just veer off of land and into the sky. Right? So it's very realistic in the bottom half, but then something happens in the top half and that road really takes off. That's right. And you can see there's like an an obelisk and like a big sphere, which I think were um, part of the buildings at the World's Fair. So yeah, you can see that this car is kind of driving into the, the hopeful future, right? And so which quilt does this remind you of? You said it reminded you of another quilt that you really liked. Well, it relates to another quilt, um, which is pictured on page 191 of the book. And it's Lillian Smith Fordyce's quilt, which she called Calendar. It, um, it has the, the background color is what we often call Nile green or apple green or sometimes even depression green. It's a, just a very specific um, sort of Easter eggy shade of green, which was very popular during the Great Depression, during the 30s. A lot of the, the colors of the of 1930s quilts, these very cheerful pastels, which kind of correlate, you know, with this idea of soft covers for hard times. Everything else looks gray, you know, especially in all these photographs. So we're going to use the brightest, cheeriest colors imaginable. Well, but also it's not heavily saturated, right? It's a desaturated green. It's a pastel. It's muted. That's right. So it's hopeful, but it's a cautious optimism. I like that interpretation. Yeah. So Lillian designed the quilt with three concentric rings of pieced and applique designs. The outer ring really is almost just like um, piano keys, like individual swatches of fabric. The inner ring, the middle ring, has 12 segments which align with a calendar, which I'm sure is why we call this quilt calendar. And in each of these, she has a little vignette, a little scene that she's looks like predominantly um, applique and embroidery. Um, So, you know, January, which starts basically at one o'clock, if you're picturing it as as a a hands on a clock, has this winter scene. Uh, She was in a very rural area in Greene County, Pennsylvania, which is far western Pennsylvania. And then each of the the 12 um, months kind of marks the the seasons of the year, the kinds of things, uh, holidays. There's like one where we see a crescent moon over the seedlings that are planted in the garden. Um, there's another that has uh, a, the beach, um, you know, and an umbrella and a child playing with a beach ball. There's so many apples embroidered for one of the fall. You know, Yannick and I went straight for the September block because I'm a September baby. And I was like, wow, that's, yeah, it's a classroom scene. And in the middle of that scene is the wall clock right and I just feel like that's so perfect like in my memory as a student in class I often remember sitting there watching the clock on the wall so I think that's such a sweet detail to add here yeah then the very center ring you know and it's it's an unusual design for a quilt no matter what but the very center ring um has I'm going to make sure I count the segments correctly. Seven additional segments. I have no idea if there's any symbolism. And these are... Those are days of the week. Yes. Okay. Oh, my gosh. You just solved that for me. There's a church. That's right. And, like, this is back when, you know, you did your laundry on Monday and you did your... Ironing? Looks like you're ironing on Tuesday. Yeah. So these are just very sweet little domestic scenes that she has stitched. Seven days of the week, of course, Zach. Um, this is just such a beautiful quilt. Seeing it in person was, again, something that was so remarkable. Um, you can see in the other detail shot on page 190 that the quilting stitches are drawing on the theme of the World's Fair itself, which was a century of progress. They kind of emphasized transportation. We see the an American flag stitched in the quilting, and that's a zeppelin. Um, to the right of the American flag. So she was following the the theme of the contest as well. Um, but I love the personal, con- you know, feeling of, of these intimate scenes that she's stitched for the months and, and for the days of the week. And it's the, the quilting pattern is so muted. Like I have looked at this before, of course, talking with you when I first got the book and I didn't even see the flag and the car and the Zeppelin. So much work 
and it just it just lays in waiting, lays in waiting for it to pay off. Yannickan, is there another quote you wanted to tell us about in this collection? Yeah, and I'm like, you know, debating in my head which one I should actually talk about. I'm going to talk about one of the quilts that is less symbolic, less narrative driven. Um, it's on page 200. This is very much a scrap quilt. I know that some scrap quilts were certainly made in the decades prior to the Great Depression. I don't at all want to say anything definitive. I try to never, I just use the word never, I try to never use the word never or always when it comes to, to quilts because there's always exceptions. We can comment on trends and sort of what we see in the historical record, which is always limited by what has survived and what, what is available for us to use as evidence. But this quilt clearly is a scrap quilt. It seems to be leftovers from a number of different projects. If you look closely at the fabrics, it's some of them are probably from the late 19th century based on their uh, the print and the, the pattern, the color. But then there's a lot of these pastels that are common from the 30s as well. And it's all just mixed together in a really delightful way. Barbara Brackman, who's one of the great quilt historians of, of the late 20th and 21st century, she used the phrase frugal but fashionable. Like it was actually fashionable to have a mishmash like this, but it also was an intentional creative expression. Just like people today are making scrappy quilts, that's a, that's a style of quilts, right? The same thing was true during the 1930s, and this quilt showcases that. But also, you know, I just want to know something about this maker. What were, what were her inspirations? What were the actual projects that maybe she didn't finish? Or, or maybe I'm reading that into it, that this was like, you know, she just would carry handwork with her. And this today she's made a little nine patch and there's like an eight-pointed star. And then eventually had just a lot of bits and pieces and stitched them all together into a very pleasing composition. We call this an album quilt. I mean, that's what the quilt museum calls it, which is accurate. We call an album anything that has a, a bunch of different patterns all involved, but it doesn't really seem like an album. It seems just like this glorious, playful expression of all of these bits and pieces, all of these scraps. And to me, my eye just doesn't know where to rest in the most wonderful way. It's like this quilt is effervescent. Very busy. Yeah, very busy. If there is one resting point, though, that my eye keeps going back to, it's in the upper left-hand corner, that one diagonal stripe of fabric that looks like it's a blue check with the square, the grid on top. Oh, yeah. My eye just keeps resting there. And I just think that's such a beautiful piece of fabric and huh. so well positioned. It's gorgeous. It is. Yeah. And you, and you can tell that there's an intentional design, even though it's haphazard. You know, there's still intentionality to it. So if folks can't make it to the International Quilt Museum before April 20th, is there some way they can learn more about this? I mean, obviously through your book, but is there, are there any other resources that you would like to make people aware of? The International Quilt Museum has a nice sort of gallery page for starters, which um, you can see some of the images of the exhibition itself. It's really lovely. So you can see some gallery shots uh, in the Quilt Museum's website. As I mentioned, I have a, a working website that uh, I've used during the duration. I started this work in earnest in spring of 2020 when I was on sabbatical. And as you might recall, spring of 2020 did not go as any of us anticipated. And none of my archival research trips transpired. Um, but I had a lot of time on my hands. And so one of the things I did was I created a basically a website to be writing in public, but also showcasing a lot of the the photographs, like the New Deal photographs, but also images of quilts. Um, so I'll, I'll share that link with you as well. So you can scroll through a lot more of the primary sources that I drew on. Um, I've written a couple other published things that uh, if you really want to get in the weeds of the Tennessee Valley Authority quilts in particular, but um, you can see more images online. Uh, we have a really a digital exhibition that is still in progress that'll hopefully launch before the um, in-person exhibition closes. That'll showcase a lot of the same as a way to like make it live on after the exhibit closes. And to open it up to folks who wouldn't be able to make it in person. You know, that's a really beautiful Absolutely. offering. Yeah. Right. So Yannickan, this has been such a lovely conversation. Thank you for your stories, for sharing your research so generously and giving us a really full idea of the role of quilts in this pivotal time in our history. I'm going to ask you a question to ask all of my guests when I remember to ask them, and that is, how does working with cloth make us more human? 
I'm interested in your personal opinion as Yannick and Smucker, but I'm also interested in your researcher's opinion, what you may have seen in studying these images and hearing these stories and reading the books that you've read. That's a lovely question. And certainly one of the things that I'm drawn to about quilts and textiles in general is exactly that, that they are so connected to us as humans. To me, quilts in particular, and I'll say this is me personally, Yannick and Smucker, but also based on my research, quilts resonate with us as humans so much. They are objects of comfort, that their symbolic meaning as objects of comfort, I think trumps like any of their aesthetic qualities, any of the technique. It's that feeling of having a quilt and the associations we have with quilts in our lives. I grew up around quilts, always slept under them, still do. And I and there is an emotional connection. And we even see it in some of the earlier things we talked about, that there's nostalgia for quilts, like goes back, you know, almost 200 years. We've been nostalgic for these sentimental objects. And this, this sentimentality, this idea of quilts, I think is just as strong as the actual objects of quilts because of how they resonate with us and the feelings they evoke of, of home and comfort. Particularly, you know, this idea of home and comfort is something I really picked up on with this research as well, because so many people were displaced during the Great Depression and they're moving, you know, west to California or they're, you know, following whatever the crops are. And yet we see quilts in shacks. We see quilts in, quilts in tents quilts used in all of these precarious living situations. And I can't help but think that, yeah, of course, they want these quilts with them. They feel like home. So even when your home is not your home, if you have a quilt with you, you at least have that sense of comfort, that tactile thing that makes it feel like home, even if it isn't home. And we're going to leave it there with that little piece of poetry. Thank you so much, Yannickin. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Yannickin. I know I'll never think about quilts in my grandparents' generation the same way again. If you're interested in learning more about quilt history, I bet you'd really like my two conversations with Jess Bailey, a.k.a. Public Library Quilts on Instagram. You can find those on June 7th, 2023, and then our original conversation on April 6th, 2022. Now, before I let you go, don't forget there's a Nook membership giveaway happening until December 31st, 2023. There'll be a link for that in the show notes below. In the meantime, I hope you're well. I hope you're sowing something good. And I hope our paths cross again real soon. Maybe on the Nook. Who knows? <laughs>